As we're about to start, I do want to mention that if you would like to take notes, you will be having uh, several slides, and there are notes in the, in the uh, family room in that center table if you'd like to get these. Uh, many of you were here yesterday and so already have your booklet from yesterday, but if you'd like to get one of these, they are there with some pens, and so I just wanted to mention that real quickly. I do want to thank two groups of people who have helped us, uh, help me so much through this whole event. One group is the adult education team. They help me on a regular basis with all the matters of adult education, but yesterday you got to see them really working. Uh, they served us supper and, and helped a whole lot with all the things that went with the day. Uh, John Folks, Prentice Spivey, Chris Cuevas, and Matthew Whitson. Let's just give them a hand because they have done a lot of work for today. And as a side note, I do want to thank on a regular basis uh, the, the guys who worked so hard to bring us live stream. For those of you who are watching right now, for those of you who watched yesterday um, uh, on YouTube, um, you know you know that uh, Robert. Hatcher and Richard Chow work endlessly trying to make sure we have those available. Yesterday they had fun because some things didn't go well technically and they had a little bit extra work today and so I just want to thank them for sure this morning. Along with that I do want to mention if you missed yesterday and you listened this morning and go man he's really he actually is actually good I should have been there. Um, we have all the sessions in our YouTube subscription place. And so if you'd like to go there and, and watch them, uh, they are all available already. If you own an Apple TV, they are also on our Apple TV app. So those are both places um, to notice that. Now, I know you all like to hear me tell a story. So I wanted to share this particular story. Um, I have some friends involved in Bible translation. And that's a little bit about what we're talking about today. And so I thought this, this story to be useful this morning. Skip Furchow and David Akoitai sat at a plywood desk translating the Gospel of Mark into the Rotakis language. A cool breeze drifted through the open window, heralding the rain that fell every afternoon in this Papua New Guinea island of Bougainville. Akoitai reread the verse they had just translated. He thought for a moment, and then he said, When I read God's word in my own language, it is much easier for me to understand that when I, than when I read it in English. He said, Trying to read the English Bible is like trying to drink out of a cup with a lid on it. I know there's water inside. I just can't quite get to it. But when I read the Bible in my own language, it's like drinking deeply from a full cup with no lid. My thirst is quenched, and I understand completely. I thought that was a great story about men and women who work in Bible translation across the globe, bringing the words of God to places that you and I will never hear of, never know. But they do that kind of work. So today, Dr. Kurt Nakem, Assistant Director of ACU Center for the Study of Ancient Religious Texts, and he also teaches Greek and New Testament studies at the school. Um, 
He is um, also the co-director of the Textual History of the Ethiopic Old Testament Project, which recently got a grant, a large grant, from the National Endowment of the Humanities. Additionally, he is a member of the International Greek New Testament Project Committee. So the guy knows his stuff, okay? So you do need to know, though, best of all, that he is married to Deborah, and she is here with us today. Be sure to say hello to her. They have two children. He does preach for the South 11th and Willis Church in Church of Christ in Abilene. So, Kurt, come and speak, please. Okay, that story about translation has me wanting to talk about translation for the next hour. <laughs> oh, uh, oh, so many good things and so many challenging things to think of in terms of Bible translation. But I don't have any slides and it would make your uh, little workbook sheets worthless. So uh, we'll, we'll do that some other time. Now, uh, before I get started, uh, I mentioned this yesterday, but some of you weren't uh, able to attend yesterday. Uh, I love this congregation, and uh, I know that some of you have been praying for me on a daily basis as I've gone through my health issues. Uh, both Deborah and I know that uh, prayer is what has been in the healing process, uh, most of the healing process, if not all. Uh, and the fact that uh, I can be standing up here today, uh, oh, had a lot of doubt about whether I'd make it through uh, all of yesterday and was able to do that. So God be praised for that and we thank you from the heart uh, for constantly keeping us uh, in your prayers. Uh, things, things are improving and in large part because of your concern and care for us. Um, we looked yesterday at how we got the Bible um, and uh, how the Bible is inspired, and can we trust the Bible? And largely, we've put together this uh, series because uh, there are a lot of attacks on the authority of the Bible. And most of the time, when people are attacking Christianity or Christian faith or Christian ideas, it's sort of out in a different sphere. It really doesn't impact us much. But... Uh, I'm not going to get into all the history of it, but things changed in 1985, uh, and they have just sort of uh, exploded since then, and the end result is that our young people are being exposed to these attacks on the authority of the Bible, and they are easily susceptible to them because the attacks sound reasonable. Um, and there may be something also about youth, right? There is a tendency to question authority. Um, and the authority they want to question is the authority that's immediately in their lives. Uh, not recognizing that the tweet or the Instagram or the Facebook message or whatever they got is equally an authority in some sense that they're welcoming. But they're welcoming it because it feels like it's against some authority that they're, they're struggling with. I mean, there's lots of different dynamics going on, but uh, I am concerned. Because as a professor, I have seen uh, this happen. I shared an email from one of my students. Well, actually, it wasn't one of my students. Uh, it was from somebody else who had attended a university where I taught at that went, transferred to a state school, 
uh, and lost his faith because the religion teacher at the state school presented stuff he'd never heard of before, and he automatically assumed that had to be right and what his Bible professors had taught him was wrong. Uh, when it was the exact opposite. Uh, but I've had former students, uh, based on reading some of these bestseller books, because there are a lot of good writers out there trying to challenge some of the traditional ideas about the Bible, and they read a book, and it seems presented well, and it's well-written and engaging, and then they automatically assume, well, that must be right. And uh, we, are, we are losing people um, because, for whatever reasons, we've not given them the tools to discern what's, what's right. How do we measure what's right? What are we looking for? What, so, you know, in three hours, it was longer than three hours yesterday, but sort of three hour, uh, three one hour segments, try to give you lots of information try to provide some basic ideas for discerning and addressing these types of things. Today, what I wanna do is talk about um, how do we read the Bible, All right? Because uh, the attacks on the Bible have focused on the human component of biblical history. I want to talk about human, the human component in a different aspect this time because one of the reasons that a lot of people are questioning the Bible is due to how humans are claiming to follow it, but clearly not. That um, the problem lies with People. So, some preliminary observations, uh, just sort of setting the stage for uh, understanding what I'm going to be talking about. Uh, biblically literate people, hey, biblically literate people are questioning the church because they see that today's church is not living the message of the Bible. Right? And what I mean by that is people who have read the Bible then look at churches or look at Christians in their lives and say, you know what, there's a problem there. Um, one of my favorite comedy troops, you're gonna have to forgive me, keep praying for me on a daily basis, <laughs> is Monty Python. And Monty Python wanted to make a movie making fun of Jesus because their only exposure to Jesus had been Christians in their lives. And they thought, this is silly. This would make a great movie. And they ended up making The Life of Brian. But as they were doing research for their movie, they're reading the Gospels, and what they found out was they like Jesus. They just hate his people. Uh, because the people that were in their lives who were claiming to follow Jesus and follow Jesus closely clearly were not anything like Jesus. And so that's the human component that really becomes a problem is how we are living this. I mean, to stand around and say, this is inspired, this is the holy word of God, this is eternal truth, and then not to live it out is really problematic, it seems to be. Now, those people who don't know the Bible, 
assume that the evils that are done by people claiming to be Christian or evils done in churches have to be rooted in the Bible. Their assumption is, well, it must be that book that's making them act that way. So uh, if we want to present a a solid argument to the world about the inspiration of the Bible, where that argument needs to come from is our lives. Our lives are going to prove the living word because it is living. And it's living in us. There was a study done, uh, it's, it's a little old now, it's, it's probably been uh, at least 10 years, uh, probably 12 years. Uh, Kinneman, who uh, also works with the Barna Study Group, did an extensive uh, sociological survey of the status of conservative Christian uh, beliefs and practices in the U.S., uh, and I would strongly recommend you, you read his book. It's called Unchristian. Uh, his, uh, his results are basically the same results that uh, Monty Python came up with. <laughs> and that is that uh, Jesus is somebody that everybody can appreciate, but not Jesus' people. But this is going to strike you. There is no st- statistically significant difference This is the result of a study. There is no statistically significant difference between the thoughts and practices of contemporary conservative Christians and non-believers in America. In other words, there is no discernible difference between an atheist and a Christian in America based on how they act in the workplace, in the family, uh, in their choices that they make uh, on a daily basis. And that was shocking to me. It shouldn't have been. It was right there smack in front of my face. But (laughs) it was still shocking to me to think of a people who are called to be resident aliens, right? People who are called to be foreigners in this world. Yeah, and we can easily recognize foreigners. They talk different, they dress different, they have different customs, right? That's the way Christians should be in this world. But there is no discernible difference between an atheist and a conservative Christian in America. I would say there's a problem, and this is... the. And it's that problem that a lot of people latch on to to say, well, the Bible's meaningless. The Bible's just a collection of human thoughts about God and not very valuable at, at all. And so the problem is the church's failed witness. Right? It, it's, it's our fault. It's on our shoulders. You know, God is God, right? If anybody's going to make a mistake, it's not him. Right? Uh, the burden is on us. Now, it would be nice if God just said, you know, I'm going to do everything for you. Well, well, it sounds nice, doesn't it? It sounds nice if God's going to do everything for us, but the gospel story is that God is with us. That God has chosen to live 
within us through his spirit, that God has chosen us to be his fellow workers, that God has chosen to work with us, not apart from us, and thankfully not against us, but God with us, Emmanuel. And we have failed the mission. It's our failed witness, not the Bible that is at fault here, and not the people attacking the Bible. Uh, If we want to present a coherent argument of the value and the inspiration of God's word, it has to be in our witness to the world. And until then, we are failing. We can come up with all the best arguments, defending the Bible, but they are going to fall on deaf ears if we are not living God's will. So, we've got to introduce you to a Greek nerd word, hermeneutics. Now, I am, I am not a big fan of Greek and Latin nerd words. I've used a few uh, the last 24 hours. And I've used a few because they just become a part of church language and discussions about Bibles and things. But what you need to do is hermeneutics comes from the Greek word for translation. And what it means is uh, translating the Bible into one's life, right? How do we translate the text of yesterday, this ancient text, into our lives today, because that takes some work, right? And Kinnaman's study has shown that uh, there's a lot more work to be done, right, if we're going to actually translate God's word into our lives. How do we take this text and make it meaningful? And you have to understand, there are a lot of things in here that are a little bit weird for modern society. They were perfect for ancient society, but God still suggesting that what was good then is good for us now, but we've got to do some translating. How do we figure out what is the appropriate parallel in how we apply God's will in the things that we face on a daily basis? And so all of us are involved in hermeneutics, period. But you also have some scholars who wrestle with, okay, how how do we best interpret the Bible? How do we best engage the biblical text in order for God to work through us better? Um, And so hermeneutics gets supplied to just the the idea of how we interpret the Bible. Um, But all of us are practiced in hermeneutics. That's that's the Christian life. And and that's what I want you to get out of this, is that... uh, All of us are involved in this. So how are you translating the Bible into your life? How are you making God's living and active word living and active in you? Is a big part of what needs to be done here. Now, in the Church of Christ... Uh, You may be familiar with a particular biblical interpretation, we might call it a hermeneutic, that was pretty much standard for 100 years. Um, And it basically got its start by a book from J.S. Lamar called The Organon of Scripture. Now, if you are a mathematician, you may recognize that Isaac Newton wrote a book called The Organon. Um, 
or if you're into physics. But uh, uh, Isaac Newton presented to the world a relatively easy way to understand scientific reasoning. And Isaac Newton popularized the scientific revolution. And his book, The Organon, was a big part of that. And that influenced a lot of people, including Christians. And they thought, maybe we should take Isaac Newton's principles of scientific investigation and apply them to Scripture. And you start getting language like God wrote two books, the book of science and the Bible. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but science is not a book. And science is not literature. Well, that's the same thing as saying science is not a book. The end result is we should investigate them differently. But at this point in Western history, everybody was excited about uh, the new scientific discoveries and approaches and people applied it to the Bible. And J.S. Lamar applied that to the Bible and came up with a hermeneutic that you're probably more familiar with uh, as command, example, and necessary inference. I just want to point out, the Bible is not a science textbook. As we saw yesterday, the Bible is more a divine training manual. Right? Uh, that's the focus. It's supposed to be transformative. It's supposed to change our lives. Uh, science is just there. Okay? Uh, you know, the, the planets are out there, the trees and the mountain. You know, you've, you've got all the stuff that's working that God's put in place. It's there. Okay? Matter of fact, you're going to get me off on a tangent here. Okay? I blamed it on you. I'm going to go off on a tangent, and it's my fault. But in Scripture... There is often, especially in the book of Psalms and the prophets, but also some in the New Testament, an implicit critique made from creation. And I think this is important because it comes back to the idea that the burden is on us to live out the inspired scriptures. What the Jews noticed is that God created everything, and God's creation really works the way it's supposed to do. Stars do the things that stars are supposed to do. Lakes and streams do the things that lakes and streams are supposed to do. Trees do the things that trees are supposed to do. But the height of creation, humanity, the part of creation that is given free will chooses to use that free will to go against God. So that out of all the ordered creation, the only disorder is in humanity. How sad is that? But if we live out God's life, God's will, God's word, if we share his characteristics, then all of a sudden we become humans the way we were supposed to be when God created Adam and Eve that we are restoring the fullness of creation when we are doing God's will like the rest of creation. 
There's this implicit call. You'll, you'll see in the prophets that God will take the Israelites to court. And God always calls the mountains and the trees and the valleys uh, to be jury and to be witnesses because they know how to do God's will. And the people don't. And, and to be transformed by God, the work of the Spirit in the Word, in us, in the church, is to be transformative, is to make us to be the people that God originally created us to be, and through new birth, through baptism, being recreated fully in the image of God. We're supposed to look different. Okay? So, uh, command, example, necessary inference is one way of interpreting Scripture. It's not the only way. There are lots of ways, and every new generation creates more ways of interpreting Scripture. And overall the different methods that have been developed for interpreting Scripture have been fine. They've been okay. But only when they match a particular hermeneutic, and this is the hermeneutic that Jesus, well, he didn't come up with it, but he said that's the right hermeneutic. Jews in Jesus' day divided the law into various commands. When you take the Ten Commandments, um, they divided the law, the Ten Commandments, into two parts based on the fact that the two greatest commands are love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. And the first part of the Ten Commandments is how you love God. The second part of the Ten Commandments is how you love your neighbor. And talked about this a little bit yesterday, various scenes and discussions in the Bible where the Ten Commandments come up, the focus is always on how you love your neighbor uh, because all of the books of the New Testament were written to people who already at least claimed to love God. And their real challenge was to prove their love of God by loving their neighbor. Okay. Uh, but Jesus puts his stamp of approval and says, if you're going to read Scripture, that has to be your hermeneutic. Love the Lord your God, Love your neighbor as yourself. And the writers of the New Testament follow that same pattern of interpretation. Uh, St. Augustine, who's one of the most uh, influential uh, writers of the Western church in the early 5th century, uh, promotes it, which makes it part of uh, medieval Christian history. Uh, this has been a part of Christian biblical interpretation since Christ. And we probably could say even earlier, since the two greatest commands are in Torah, in the book of the law itself, in Genesis through Deuteronomy. But Jesus really focuses on this capacity to love. Not just love God, but love our neighbor. And Jesus is using this Jewish rule of interpretation that says if you have two passages that share a significant word or phrase, then you should use them to interpret one another. And so when Jesus says, it's love the Lord your God and love your neighbor, what he's saying is those two aren't two separate commands. They are inextricably combined together. 
that if you're not loving your neighbor, you're not loving God. If you're not loving your neighbor, you're not following Scripture. And you really don't know how to love your neighbor unless you know the love of God. And that has been at the core of Christian reading of Scripture through virtually every generation. And what's going to matter then is the different types of tools that we might develop to help us understand the Bible better only become useful if they are put under the, her, her, the, the hermeneutic of love, right? If I don't take these methods of understanding the Bible better and submit them to the two greatest commands, they become worthless. Um, biblical methods and interpretations come and go, and they have been useful, and each one tends to help us see God's Word from a different perspective. But what matters is how we live out that word. It is possible for me as a Bible professor to make the study of the Bible purely academic. I attend a convention every November where eight to 12,000 Bible professors get together. And it's absolutely clear that the majority of them may know Scripture really well, but they don't know God because it's purely an academic pursuit. But for us, it's different. For us, God is doing something, and that is what's important. And so to sort of take the hermeneutic that was a part of the Church of Christ tradition and sort of submit it to uh, 1 Corinthians 13, right? If I follow all of the divine commands and do not have love, Right? I'm worthless. If I imitate all the divine examples and do not have love, I'm just a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. If I understand all necessary inferences and do not have love. Right? It's love. It is living out God's characteristic of love and letting it overflow in our lives into the lives of others. Oh good, somebody, I've I've converted one person. (laughs) So I want you to think about something. We'll move to the next slide. I have a feeling about Jesus' second coming. Uh, And and I get this feeling from reading the Bible. At the first coming of Jesus, he did not correct every faulty biblical interpretation. And and I argued yesterday that that's uh, part of God's grace. That's part of uh, the gospel story, is that God's working with us at our level, and... I'm sure God's going, I don't know what you're doing with that passage. That's not what I intended. But you're okay as long as you're loving people. And it's clear from the 
information we have in the Gospels, and it's clear from the subsequent disciples and the writings that we have and the stories that we have, that Jesus did not correct every faulty interpretation when he first showed up. However, whenever a faulty interpretation was used to harm somebody, when it was used as a weapon against others, then he got upset. It is okay if we don't fully understand Scripture. It is okay if we get some things wrong. Why? Because God is gracious. Now, this is not an excuse to settle with what's wrong. It is an invitation to get to know God better and to use his word as a means of becoming more like him and getting to know God better better so that we can be more like Christ. It is an invitation to transformation and change. It is not a, well, God's gracious, so let me just sit back and settle with my really bad biblical interpretation. Shall we sin so that grace may abound? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Whenever a faulty inter- interpretation was used as a weapon against other people in the name of the Lord, he responded negatively. And I have a feeling that the same thing's going to be true at the second coming. Now, as a Bible professor, I'm really scared about Jesus coming again. Because guess who got in the most trouble the first time? Right? It's the Bible professors. And I'm pretty sure that the second coming is going to be the Bible professors. So I'm, I'm in an awkward spot. I'm ready for Christ to return again. Absolutely. And I firmly believe that I am in good standing, but so did the first Bible professors. And so what matters is in my role as Bible professor, am I practicing a hermeneutic of love? Am I loving my neighbors as myself? Am I loving my students as myself? Am I training them to love? And not just love, I mean, love can be defined in a number of different ways. I I think I have some time. I'm going to go off on a tangent again. I do this a lot, by the way, when I teach. Drives my students nuts. Because uh, I never tell them when I'm going on a tangent. I'm being nice to you. <laughs> Bernard of Clairvaux, French monk, about the 10th century, uh, came up with four levels of love. Okay? Because probably throughout human history, we've had different interpretations of love. Okay? The type of love that is advocated in Scripture is quite different than the type of love advocated in country music, just as an example. (laughs) Uh, And uh, Bernie said there, there are four types of love. The worst type of love is I love me for me. This is the type of love of a sociopath. Nobody else exists. Everything is me and just me. Um, 
but there's still some sense of love there. And Bernie goes, thankfully, there's not too much of that going on, but most of the world is, I love you for me. I at least recognize you exist, but your existence is for me. And so the relationship is all about manipulation. How can I get you to do what I want? It's like dating in high school. But that's where a lot of the world is today. And Bernie goes, there's higher levels of love. And he says, most Christians are at the next level, which is I love you for you. I recognize that you exist. I recognize that you are distinct from me, but I also recognize that there can be a mutually beneficial relationship here. That I can benefit you, you can benefit me, and there's value in that relationship. (coughs) But he goes, that's not the model of love we get in Scripture. The love that we are called to in Scripture is I love me for you. That I recognize you exist and I recognize your value and in our relationship, I don't care how you respond to me. What I care about is how I love you. That I will be the best person I can be for your sake. Isn't that the story of Jesus? Who did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being found in human likeness, dying on a cross. God emptying himself to serve me. When Jesus starts heading towards Jerusalem, and he knows what's going to happen there, he knows he's going to die on the cross. I just imagine, this is just speculation on my part, but I imagine that some of the things he's thinking about as he's heading towards Jerusalem is the people he's dying for. And somewhere in that list is Kurt Nickham. Now, hopefully, I'm way down that list, but I imagine Jesus, I'm going to have to die for Peter. He can be a good guy sometimes, but he's also, he's just up and down and everywhere. And he's going to betray me. I'm going to, I'm going to die on the cross for Judas, Hitler, Stalin, Kurt, your names. But Jesus chooses to be the best he can be for me, regardless of my response to him. It doesn't matter whether I put my faith in him, I'm glad I did. But even if I rejected him, he went to that cross for me. And that's the type of love, that's what it means to love your neighbor. That's what it means to live out the love of God in our lives and no wonder the world sees a huge difference between the love that's portrayed in the Bible and the love that's lived out in the lives of people around them who claim to be Christian. We need to aim for that higher level of love. So, um, we'll go to the next slide. Um, Often our approaches to Scripture actually are 
contrary to the intentions of Scripture. Thankfully, because of the power of God, that doesn't always do a lot of damage. But I think the focus, again, should not be on how to... (laughs) As long as God's covering the liability, we're okay. Uh, I think one of the things that we should focus on is how do we engage books the way they are intended to be read? And the Bible contains a lot of different books of a lot of different genres, so you have to read them differently and treat them differently. You know, Psalms is a songbook. So you don't say, well, let's start with song number one, and we're just going to sing our way through the book. Now, I know of churches, I've been part of churches who've tried to do that with their own songbooks, and that failed. Uh, But uh, it also doesn't work well with psalms either. You need to look for those psalms that uh, sort of uh, speak to the moment. or uh, are are offering uh, a message that can help at at this particular time. Uh, But then you have other books that are intended to be read from front to back, like Romans, or the Gospel of Mark. And I think there is a lot of value in reading the text the way God gave it to us, the intentions for how we should uh, engage those texts. Now, there are a number of different ways that people have engaged the text, and it doesn't mean the ways are wrong, but sometimes we just sort of fall into a pattern of this is the only way. Um, one of the ways that is often done, especially in, in terms of the talk of inspiration uh, of the Bible, is apologetics and proof texting where our focus is really not on the message of the Bible, but taking things that we think are true, things that we want to be true, and then finding passages in Scripture that can support it. That's forcing God's will to our will. Uh, Historically, that's not a good thing to do if you've read the Bible. Lectionaries. Some of you may not know what lectionaries are, but in a lot of Christian churches, uh, the practice is to get most Christians through most of the Bible in a three or five year cycle. Uh, but what happens is the, the Bible's divided up, but it's not read together. So you don't get the whole Gospel of Mark in one setting. You get uh, typically a reading out of Torah, reading out of the prophets, reading out of the Gospels, reading out of the letters. Uh, and it's all mixed up. It's still God's word. It's still valuable stuff to hear. Sometimes it's, it's great to hear them connected because you're making connections that you might not normally do so if, say, you were just reading Paul's letter to the Romans. But it, the end result is you're only hearing the word of God out of context. And one of the things that we've seen over and over and over yesterday is context determines meaning. And you end up losing some important context. And sometimes you lose some important biblical passages because uh, the people that put lectionaries together often leave out certain things that are challenging and need to be thought about by Christians today. And then you have people who only focus on the commands, right? And it can be uh, command, example, necessary inference. That's one thing. But I run into a lot of people who sort of view themselves as red-letter Christians. Okay, red-letter Bible is where editors have gone in and colored all the sayings of Jesus in red. 
And people are going, it's really only the sayings of Jesus that matter. If that's true, then our Bible would only have the sayings of Jesus. All right? Uh, there's, there's a logical problem uh, with that. Uh, plus, you are um, expecting the editors to get the coloring right, and frequently they don't. All right. So, um, if, if that becomes any one of those or any, anything else becomes the pattern for how we read Scripture, then we can come up with some crazy things. I, I've got some examples to share with you. Um, in Acts chapter seven, uh, 7 and 17, in chapter 7 we have Stephen addressing the Jewish authorities in the temple. Uh, the highest religious authorities of Israel gathered together and Stephen tells them God does not live in temples built with human hands. And then in Acts chapter 17, Paul is before the Areopagus, which is sort of standing in as the highest uh, sort of leadership of pagan religion. And Paul repeats those words, God does not live in temples with human hands. Now, Luke wants us to connect those two stories, and there's a lot of stuff that's going on there, but that's missed if we take some of those other interpretive approaches, like proof texting. I made a presentation once uh, and uh, uh, mentioned something about clapping hands in worship, and that upset somebody. And he came up right afterward, which I appreciated. He came up and said, you know we can't clap in worship because God does not live in temples built with human hands. <laughs> okay, apparently you all believe that. Uh, if you ever read Acts, you'll find out that's not what Paul's talking about, what Luke is talking about. All right? Uh, that's not the focus. The focus is that God is the God of the universe. And as the kingdom's borders are expanding, people who are in the kingdom are saying, Lord, you really don't want those people in. And God says, you want to bet? I'm going to let Samaritans in. No! Even though I said eunuchs can't be allowed in the kingdom in Deuteronomy 24, 23, I'm going to let them in. No! You can't break your own laws. You want to bet? I'm going to let Gentiles in. No! Why? Because God doesn't live in temp temples built with human hands. Because temples are attempts to limit geographically, to, God, to make God available only in one spot. And God has the earth as his footstool and the skies as his throne. And how can you limit him in anything he does? And in Stephen's speech, he never mentions Israel. All of God's activities in Stephen's recitation of Israelite history are events that occur outside the Holy Land with Gentiles. There's a powerful message there if you can connect those, but if you're proof texting, then the powerful message of God about loving neighbors, especially neighbors that you don't think belong in the kingdom, is lost. And if you 
run with lectionaries, then you miss some valuable connections. I pointed out yesterday that the story of Zacchaeus is connected to the story of the rich young ruler in the Gospel of Luke. Chapters 18 and 19 mirror each other. And you have people wanting to bring babies to Jesus for him to bless them. And the disciples are hindering them. And then in the next scene, we have the rich young ruler who looks like he's keeping the commands, but when Jesus actually says, okay, you say you've kept the commands since your youth, but let me see if you really love your neighbor. Sell your goods, give it to the poor, come follow me. And he goes away sad, and the disciples are going, nobody can be saved. And Jesus says, don't underestimate the power of God. Then in chapter 19, we've got a blind man calling out for Jesus. Son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowds are trying to hinder him. Thankfully, the disciples don't appear to be involved this time. They learned their lesson from chapter 18. Uh, But the other people are trying to hinder him. And Jesus has none of it. And says, these people are important for me. And then we get to the story of Zacchaeus, who is a filthy rich person who gets to be in the kingdom of God. Today, salvation has come to your house. I am getting a strange sign from my dear friend, Doug Brown. Last week, Mark was just pulled off the stage. I I was waiting for that. But apparently my time is up. Let me just uh, point out, well, there's so much more to to be said. Let me just point out that you're going to have to have me back. (laughs) Uh, This has been great. This has been my real first outing since cancer and COVID, and uh, I can't imagine sharing it with uh, a better group of people. May God bless you as his spirit works within you to be resident aliens in this world and to show by your lives that God's word is inspired.